Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it to pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. So if you've ever read the book of Leviticus, I assume I know what your opinion of it is. We have a professor of Judaic studies in the congregation, and I asked him, I thought, oh, I'd take advantage of this opportunity, because Leviticus, if it's hard for you, it's also hard for me. And I, I, so I thought, I took advantage of the opportunity. When I saw him this morning, I said, oh, so what can you tell me about the book of Leviticus? And he said, not a whole lot, but it's boring. Now, if you're a professor of Judaic studies and think the book of Leviticus is boring, how about the rest of us? Well, in one sense, I've got good news for you, is that we'll have only two sermons in the entire book of Leviticus, so we can hang in there for two sermons. Uh, You know, it is part of Scripture, so we don't want to joke about it too much, but I would grant you this. As Reader's Digest, I don't, they're hardly in business anymore, but Reader's Digest was once a really popular uh, magazine, and one of their features, one of their side businesses, was they would take best-selling novels and reduce them, abridge them, and they would put out four stories in one, and that way if you were too busy, you can't be bothered reading the whole story, you could read the abridged version. So one time in the 1970s, as I recall, they abridged the Bible. And one feature of their abridgment was they, they abridged all the books of the Bible, but they abridged Leviticus most of all. And in their Bible, Leviticus was a single page. And that's probably more than most people read voluntarily anyway. But it is the Word of God. And we don't read it just because of the Word of God. We read it because it tells us about Jesus. Well, it tells us about God. And then it tells us about Jesus, because the New Testament authors use the book of Leviticus to tell us about Jesus. So it is important. 
Well, we know it's important for a couple of reasons. Uh, for those of you who have been coming here regularly, you'll realize that what we're doing is we're preaching through the timeline of Scripture, through salvation history. What has God been doing from the beginning until the end? And where are we in that timeline? Now, the striking thing is, is really, this timeline has three pieces to it. First, God is going to give Israel a lot of descendants. And then, God is going to give Israel a land of its own. And then, through Israel, God is going to bless the nations. If you have those three ideas, you can go all the way from Genesis, the first page of the Bible, all the way to Revelation, the last page of the Bible. That's all you need is those three ideas. That's the whole storyline of the Bible. And yet, we know Leviticus has to be important. Because the author gets partway into the second stage of his story, and then he stops. You know, God gave Israel descendants, and then God started to give them land. He took them out of Egypt. He gets them there in the wilderness, and then the story stops. Something important has to be happening, or else the story would have just kept going into, okay, now they go into Canaan, and, and then they go on into Israel, and then they bless the nations. But no, no, the story stops here. And we know Leviticus is important for a second reason. Is, is This is not the only thing that stops the story. There's, there's three things that stop the storyline. But all three of them, the other two at least, we recognize are crucial. God gives Israel a lot of descendants, and they end up in Egypt. And God pulls them out of Egypt to bring them to their new land, and the story stops here. But what does it stop for? First, it stops for the law. God says, look, if I'm going to bless you, you know, God has promised a blessing, and, and God says, look, if you're going to stay in my blessing, if you're going to stay on my good side rather than my bad, here's how you have to live. You have to be like me. And here's what I'm like. So here's the law. Here's what I'm like. And now here's what you have to be like. We know the law is important. The law was crucial in the Old Testament. All of Israel's fate and fortune depended on whether or not they obeyed that law. So we know the law is important. And then God stopped the story, secondly, for the temple. Or the tabernacle. God says, look, what you're about to do is really dangerous. You need me to be there. But I'm dangerous. I'm not safe to be around. You know, you're sinners, I'm holy. You're going to do something stupid and I'm going to get really angry and I'm going to kill you. So you've got to build a tabernacle. Where I'll stay inside the tabernacle and you stay out. I can be close enough to you to help you, but I'm not so close to you that you annoy me and I destroy you. So the, the tabernacle is important. The law is important. The tabernacle is important. So when God stopped the story halfway out of Egypt, or out of Egypt and ha halfway on the way to Canaan, when he stopped the story in the wilderness to tell us about the law and to tell us about the tabernacle, big items. These are huge the story is important. That's, th these things are important. That's why the storyline has to stop. And so the third thing, along with law, along with tabernacle, is sacrifice. And mostly Leviticus is about sacrifice. God's given them this temple, this tabernacle, this tent, in which the priests will conduct worship. And now he has to stop a little while longer to tell, tell them how to do that worship. And so Leviticus, certainly the first seven chapters, the first nine chapters, are all about how 
they have to live, how they have to, the rituals they have to follow because God's in their midst. It's about the sacrifices that they have to perform. And the sacrifices are important, not just because they interrupt the story. The sacrifices are important because of what they tell us. The, The sacrifices tell us about sin. The sacrifices tell us about us as sinners, human beings. Uh, the, the sacrifices tell us about forgiveness. The sacrifices tell us about God. And ultimately, the sacrifices tell us about Jesus. So first, the sacrifices tell us about sin. You know, a first scripture reading this morning, I'm, I'm, a, nice, I'm a nice pastor, right? We could have read the whole chapter. Or we could have read the whole first seven chapters, all about sacrifices. All we read was one piece of one sacrifice. And there's five sacrifices. And they follow pretty much the same pattern. But five sacrifices. And these sacrifices are typically, if you need, if you've done something really bad wrong, you know, you're really in trouble, and now you have to bring a sacrifice, and it tells you exactly how to bring that sacrifice, what to bring, how to bring it, how to prepare it, uh, how to slaughter it, how to offer it. It tells you all the details. But sacrifice wasn't just when you messed up. They had morning sacrifices every day. They had evening sacrifices every night. And then you had to have individual sacrifices on top of that. What's the message of the sacrifices? The first thing that that sacrifices tell us is that sin is ever pervasive. Sin is always around. God has to deal with it in the morning, where we do too. God has to deal with it in the evening, we do too. God has to deal with it at special times in our lives when we really, you know, that's the morning and the evenings, that's just for the little mess-ups. But then there's the big mess-ups that we have to deal with. So the first thing sacrifice tells us is that sin is always a problem. The second thing that sacrifice tells us is that we are responsible. We are guilty for our sins. Take a look at Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4. What's a crucial part of the ritual? Verse 4. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. You bring, a, you bring a sheep or you bring a goat or you bring a bull. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering. And it will be accepted on your behalf. See, why do they lay the hand on the head? You can't just, you know, you can't get your neighbor to bring an animal for you. You can't get somebody else to do this for you. You bring your animal and you lay your hands on the head, symbolizing that my guilt is passing to this animal. I'm responsible. And then, not only that, but verse 5. Who slaughters the animal? God says in verse 5 to the worshipers, you are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord. The priests don't sacrifice. The worshiper sacrifices. Because the first thing he does is he puts his hands on this animal's head and he says, my guilt is transferred. And then he takes up the knife himself and says, he kills that animal. Enacting 
what should actually be happening to him. You see, the personal ownership of the guilt and the responsibility is that the worshiper is required to sacrifice the animal as a symbolic enactment of his own slaughter, of himself for his own sin. And it tells us well, that while we're responsible, and, and while we lay our hands on the animal, or they lay their hands on the animal, and while they slaughter the animal, they can't do it alone. First, to be forgiven required a substitute. They brought the animal in their place. I mean, they could have died for their sin, but then there's no forgiveness, there's only death. So they bring an animal, they can't do it alone. And then where do they bring the animal? Look at verse 3. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it can be acceptable to the Lord. You remember as we were reading through Genesis, anytime something special happened, anytime God intervened in the lives of the patriarchs, what would they do? They would build an altar and they would make an offering. They could do it themselves. But now God says, no. You can't do this yourself. You have to bring your animal. You have to lay your hands on that. You have to slaughter it. But now you can't do the rest of it. Not only do you need an animal to pay for your sins, you need a priest. And they would bring that animal, they would slaughter it, and then they would handle it over to the priest. They would present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And then the priest, Aaron's sons, the priest, would bring the blood, and they splash it against the sides. So we're responsible but we can't fix the mess that we've created. That's part of the message of the sacrifice. Sin is ever around us, and we're responsible for what we do. But we can't solve the problem we've created, not alone. A third message from sacrifice is the cost of it all. Take a look at verse 2. When anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, Bring as your offering an animal from either herd or flock. Now, as it turns out, we go further. They could also bring, you have to bring an animal from the herd, i.e. cattle, an animal from the flock, i.e. goats or sheep, or you could bring a bird. What you couldn't bring was a wild animal. What you couldn't bring was roadkill. And, and, you know, Consider what it meant for them as subsistence farmers and shepherds. Consider what it meant for them to bring an animal. They would hardly ever eat meat. They had no refrigeration. When you were going to slaughter an animal, you had to, it had to be a major party you were having because you'd invite all your friends. You had to eat the whole thing right then and there. And in this case, the burnt offerings, they didn't get to eat any of it. They just slaughtered the animal. So it reinforces the costliness of sin that it cost the life of an entire animal. It cost the life of the animal, verse 5. They slaughter, you ought to slaughter the young bull. It cost the entire animal, it cost the animal's life. And it had to be an animal that was pure and spotless and unblemished, verse 3. You are to choose a male without defect. Some of them were males without defect, some of them females, but always without defect, to underscore the costliness of sin and the costliness of redemption. So the sacrifice tells us about sin. 
how often the sacrifices had to be formed tell us how prevalent sin is. The offerings tell us about sinners, that we're guilty for what we do, and our guilt passes that an animal. We have to take personal responsibility. They slaughter, and yet they can't do it alone. We can't do it alone. We need an animal. We need a priest. Sacrifices tell us how expensive sin is and how expensive redemption is. Sacrifices also tell us about God. God doesn't ignore it. God doesn't ignore sin. He requires death for God is just. He can't ignore sin. On the one hand, he's just. On the other hand, he has a heart for his people. And so he's forgiving. And so God has these two attributes, his justice and his forgiveness. And so he devises this means by which his sinful people can be cleansed to come into his presence again. Chapter 1, verse 5. You're to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the high priest, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. God has devised a system by which they can be atoned, their sin can be atoned, and they can be redeemed. Verse 4. You're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on your behalf. To make atonement. So sacrifice really tells us two different things. And puts them both together. Sacrifice tells us the depth of the problem that sin creates for us. It's always present. We're responsible for it. It requires death. It's brutally expensive. Sin tells us, uh, sacrifice tells us all these negative aspects of sin. But sacrifice tells us something else. God cares deeply about us. Remember what God had said to Moses when Israel turned viciously against God. God said to Moses, move away. I'll destroy them and create a new people. And yet he didn't do it. Instead, he brought in the sacrifice of animals. Because God doesn't want to destroy sinners. God wants to redeem sinners. So we see both the peril of sin, the pervasiveness of sin, the expense of sin, the dangers of sin. We see all of this. And yet we see also all of that is offset by the love of God, the passion of God, the mercy of God for us. So when the New Testament wanted to talk to us about Jesus and why Jesus came and lived among us and why Jesus died on the cross, when the New Testament wanted to talk to us about these things, it could find no better image in the Bible than sacrifice. Consider, there's at least five lessons we can draw for ourselves from sacrifice. Consider Hebrews chapter 10. It's on page uh, 850 in your Bible. The New Testament wants to explain Jesus and why he did what he did and what it all means. And it goes back to sacrifice. And here's the first lesson we draw. The law, chapter 10 verse 1, is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the reality themselves. For this reason, the same sacrifices 
repeated endlessly, year after year, day after day, morning after evening. They can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. All those sacrifices do is remind us of sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to tell what your sins. As the New Testament looks back on Leviticus, what it says is all these sacrifices, the morning and the evening, all these sacrifices when people really messed up and, and violated God's standards, all these sacrifices were just placeholders, just reminders, just little post-it notes. And it said, look, this has to be dealt with. But it's not dealt with here. It's just a reminder. It has to be dealt with one day. And that's the first lesson the New Testament draws from sacrifices. The second lesson is that Jesus deals with it. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. Verse 11. Day after day, every priest stood and performed his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same animal in sacrifice because it can never take away sins. But when our priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. By one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever all those who are being made holy. The temple no longer stands, so Judaism cannot offer sacrifices. But it makes no difference in our salvation that the sacrifices are no longer being offered in the temple. And when we come together to celebrate communion, what we're doing is commemorating. We're not sacrificing. We're not offering a new sacrifice every time we gather for communion each month. What we're doing is commemorating the one sacrifice to end all sacrifices. They had to sacrifice morning and evening. They had to sacrifice when they committed some egregious sin. What we do is we commemorate the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Our priests offered for all time one sacrifice for sins. And he sat down at the right hand of God. By one sacrifice, he is made perfect forever those who are being made holy. We need no more sacrifice. So the sacrifice tells us something theological. Uh, the New Testament tells us something theological about the Old Testament sacrifices. They weren't effective. The New Testament tells us something theological about Jesus. His sacrifice is effective. The third thing we learn from the New Testament is something much more practical. Theological, but also practical. In a class I was teaching once, we were discussing the difference between Anglo church and, and Chinese church. Maybe this applies to Korean church. I'm sure it applies to Japanese church. I don't know about Korean church. We were talking about the difference between Anglo church and uh, like a church like ours, where a lot of people are Chinese, not all the people. And we were talking about the differences. And not a whole lot, because, you know, basically most of us grew up in America. Most of you grew up in America. 
I've spent more time out of America than most of you. So we really kind of Americanized. And then but one person in the class said, yeah, but there's one difference, is we're guilt-ridden. You know, just whatever it be, the, whether it be genetic or whether it just be the child-rearing technique, you know, that we end up focusing on our failings and our guilts. But here's a practical implication of the crucifixion of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. Chapter 10, verse 19. Because this sacrifice has been offered once for all, for all sins, chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, the author of Hebrews writes, Brothers and sisters, we have confidence not just to come to the outer wall of the tabernacle or the first court in the temple. We have confidence because Jesus died. We have confidence not just to come into the holy place, the middle courtyard of the tabernacle, or the middle courtyard of the temple. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. Where only one priest, only once a year, could enter. Because of the sacrifice of Jesus that we celebrate today in communion, the author of Hebrews says, we have not just timidity, not just risk, Not with bells around the bottom of our robes so that if we stop moving, people can know God got angry and killed us while we were in the Holy of Holies, as they did. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. Not with a sense of inadequacy. Not with a sense of guilt. Not with an abiding feeling of shame. We have confidence to enter the most holy place. Not because of who we are, but by the blood of Jesus. By a new living way opened up for us through the curtain. We have a great high priest over the house of God. And so, he says, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and the full assurance that faith brings. Our hearts have been sprinkled, cleansed from a guilty conscience. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. We are no longer sinners sheepishly bringing a goat or a bull to a priest to offer on our behalf. Now we are going where the priest, where only the high priest could go, God is no longer in a tent or in a stone structure with us excluded to the outside because if we come close, he might kill us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. This is what we can do. When shame embarrasses us and our conscience convicts us, when all we can think about is our failures and our sins, this is the promise that the New Testament draws from sacrifices. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus.
At the same time, the New Testament consistently in Hebrews 10 adds a fourth lesson. The, the third lesson is we have confidence to go in. The fourth lesson is a little bit more somber. Because he says, look at what it costs. It, it, it wasn't just expensive. It didn't just cost your sheep or your goat or your bull. It cost Jesus. It cost the Son of God. And so he says, fourthly, to people who to people who are facing persecution and to people who are considering wavering in their faith, but people who are thinking about turning away from Christ because of persecution to save their lives, to save their fortunes, to save their homes, he added a fourth warning, a fourth implication. If we deliberately keep on sinning, now he doesn't mean you keep losing your temper. He doesn't mean you cheat or you lie. No one's condoning that kind of thing. But what he's talking about is those who turn their backs on Jesus. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, we've received the knowledge of the truth, and we turn from that truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. Maybe you grow up in church and all your... You know, your parents believe, all their friends believe, all the other families you know believe, and everybody gets baptized, you get baptized, and then you go off to an environment that's antagonistic, maybe in college. Or maybe you're from overseas and you come to America, and part of coming to America as well, you embrace American religion, and then part of going back overseas is you go back into whatever it was you had before. Or maybe, you maybe you come to faith and things go well, and then maybe things get hard, because God doesn't promise us an easy life. And you think, "Ah, I can't be bothered with this anymore. Or it's too expensive, it's too costly, it hurts too much, I don't care anymore. Bear in mind this fourth point, chapter 10, verse 28. If we deliberately turn our backs on Jesus, no sacrifice for sins is left. Only a fearful expectation of judgment. If anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy, how much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who tramples underfoot the Son of God? And there's a fifth, more pragmatic lesson of all. Paul says in Romans 12.1, Therefore, in view of what God has done for us, in view of God's mercy, I urge you, brothers and sisters, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this is really where it affects us day by day. Not just our guilty conscience, not just our sense of shame, but how we live. I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Our sacrifices now are no longer the animals from our flocks that we kill. They're no longer the money that we give. They're our lives. We offer our lives to Jesus. Now, sometimes it happens in a dramatic way. Sometimes it happens just in in daily life as we go through life. But this is the challenge, to live for Jesus, who died for us. Many of you would have faint recollection or faint knowledge of the name David Livingston. David Livingston was one of the early generation missionaries to the continent of Africa. He studied medicine and he studied the Bible because he wanted to heal bodies and souls. God had only one son, Livingston said. And that son was a missionary and a physician. 
in his service, I hope to die. Livingston came across Samuel Moffat, who at that time was a missionary to, uh, sorry, uh, Robert Moffat, who at that time was a missionary to the southern part of Africa. And Livingston asked him, do you think there's any place where I could be useful in Africa? And Moffat told him, yeah, but not where I am. Don't, you can start in the south, but head north. He said, there are entire villages where no missionary has ever been. The name of Jesus has never been heard. So Livingston started in the southern part of Africa, and he pushed toward the central. And once the gospel spread there, that wasn't enough for him. He traveled deep into the interior. He was the first European to cross the Kalahari Desert, even when the locals thought it would kill him. He was the first European to see the Victoria Falls because he kept pushing further and further across Africa. As he pushed across Africa, he saw the slave trade and he added a new weapon in his arsenal. Preach the gospel, heal the sick, and free the slaves. He he put it this way. He was once asked, or many times he was asked, how he could make such sacrifices in, the, in a generation when Africa was considered the white man's graveyard or the missionary's graveyard. When in a generation, in a time when missionaries would pack their belongings in a casket so that the people on the field had some way to bury them when they died, they'd pack all their belongings, ship them out in a casket. He was asked how he could make such sacrifices. And his answer was simply this. I never made a sacrifice. We shouldn't talk of sacrifices when we remember the great sacrifice which Christ made when he left his father's throne on high to give himself for us. Now, few of us will ever be called to do something like Livingston did. Few of us will have the opportunity, unless maybe we go into the Hindu world or the Muslim world. Some of us will. But the rest of us, we can still give our lives to pursuing this God and to spreading his name through all the avenues that he gives us. Whether it be our relationships with colleagues at work, whether it be through the work, actual work we do, whether it be through where we live and where we work. Uh, The first message of sacrifice is that Christ has died for us. Uh, The second message of sacrifice is that we now have the opportunity to live for him. Let's pray together. Father, animals gave their lives. And then Jesus gave his life. We ask that you would impel us that we might give our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.